Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it is a delight to be joined today by my friend Monica Heisey, who is a comedian and writer from Toronto. She's been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vogue, Elle, Guardian, Glamour, New York Magazine, and others. She's written for television shows like Schitt's Creek, Working Moms, Baroness von Sketch Show, and more. She currently lives in London, and Really Good, actually, is the name of her first novel. Welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. Monica, I, I like that you acknowledge off the bat that divorce is horrible and terrible, but it's not unfunny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. completely. I think it that was the thing that struck me the most about it was that even from the very beginning, when it was in the most miserable state that ever really would be it was already quite ridiculous and funny I think pretty much every bad life event is like that you know mm -hmm. nothing, is, nothing is just tragic absolutely and and so you've written this novel about Maggie a young woman who is getting a divorce and I would never imply that you are Maggie <laughs> but you do share some life experiences with her yeah I went through a divorce at a young age myself and I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to write about it, but I kind of knew equally quickly that I didn't want to write a memoir about it. So Maggie became kind of this receptacle for some of my feelings and experiences and then some things that I just thought would be funny or that I thought would meet with other people or like, you know, pilfer things from friends, divorces. So she's, she's not me, but she's a combination of lots of things I've thought or felt. And then she kind of takes those thoughts and feelings to quite an extreme place. I would never behave. That's the real, the real key difference is that I would just never <laughs> the narrator of my novel behaves. Although we do share kind of a physical profile because I really wanted to write about like body image and. You do it so well. And again, my, my listeners don't know this, but your hair looks great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and the body image stuff is, is stuff that I think most of us deal with quite a lot. And it's one of those background things that's kind of always there and then when you're in a crisis all of the background things become loud yelling voices yeah it's like when your immune system is down or something and then you get a really bad cold or you you just like don't have the willpower not to pick that scab anymore I think so much damage was done to I think probably is still being done and just in different ways but the when I was growing up, it was like tabloid culture and like, you know, things have been going around on Twitter recently of like who the plus size contestant on America's Next Top Model was. And she's this like size eight woman. And I remember those episodes where people were just yeah. enormous and, and could never be beautiful in the same way as these small girls. And that was really all that was really damaging. And then it kind of became passe to sort of acknowledge that people have these negative feelings about themselves. And it was like, you have to be performing how much you love yourself and have accepted yourself all the time. But we're all still on different levels of healed from dealing with America's Next Top Model and others. <laughs> I'm not over it. Yeah, I, I think that it's very cool to talk about accept body acceptance now as if we hadn't been absorbing these messages for the rest of our lives 
Yeah. And I also feel like for me, I just kind of want to talk about my body less just in general. I don't want to think about it. You know, there's a, a point in the book where Maggie says that her ultimate fantasy is like looking in the mirror and thinking fine and then carrying on with her day. And I, I do relate to that pretty majorly. Like, I just don't, I don't want to be going around like accepting my curves and flaunting my positivity. I just want to be alive. You know, I want everything to work how it's supposed to work. And that's it. <laughs> and and I love that one of Maggie's real struggles is to be okay with what she is, in fact, thinking about. She wants yeah. to be thinking about other things, but the things she obsesses about aren't always the noble and self-preserving kind of thoughts that she would like to have. Yeah, she's she's definitely it was very weird writing a main character who has such bad main character syndrome. I felt like I'm <laughs> validating her delusion, even though she's a totally fictional person. But she's feeling very observed and very looked at, I think, in part because she's feeling a lot of shame around her marriage ending. And that sense of like being observed and having an audience extends even to her inner monologue where she wants to be having like this incredibly virtuous and maybe like well-read in interior life and really it's just like you know how does my butt look right now why does my neck hurt which is you know maybe how it works for a lot of us absolutely and then I think like Maggie realizes right away that in terms of being the main character like one of the ways we know how to process a divorce or some big terrible thing happening is, is to see what they do in movies and then kind of kind of Think of yourself as the character in that movie, which is maybe helpful in the very, very beginning when she wants to lay on the floor. It's really interesting to me how much of what we do during difficult emotional times comes from movies and, and mm -hmm. TV. And I think part of that is because we're not great still at showing those difficult parts of life to our friends and loved ones. We might have more realistic expectations of how something like a divorce would go if if people were a bit more honest about what the stages of being going through a divorce are and how it feels but we don't have that we have you know nancy myers movies and stuff which are great but yeah not, not particularly realistic i was thinking that this book is kind of like a real uh step-by-step -step guide <laughs> phases of phases of grief for for divorce in particular and I think one of the things we see very immediately is that Maggie has a whole variety of coping mechanisms that are very delightful to share in but that probably aren't very helpful I'm thinking about like buying a bunch of shit <laughs> buying a garish lipstick color and calling it self-care yeah I mean, Maggie's someone who's just like running away from her feelings and, and herself really for maybe the first like two thirds of the novel. And yeah, I think most people going through a breakup kind of try one or two of these things. She gets really into trying a bunch of hobbies and taking classes. She goes crazy on the dating apps. You know, she's like thinking about a different haircut every day. <clears throat> and most people kind of do one of those things. And I was like, mm, I think she's going to do one. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to throw everything at it because she's just like really can't face the reality, which is that you just have to be be sad and embarrassed and and accept that that's how you feel and that your life is not going to go in the way that you had planned in this way and that you have to do all the work of picking a new way for it to go 
which is work and it's maybe less fun than going on a holiday with someone you already know really well and love, but it's really ultimately very worth it. Yeah. And Maggie met her husband, John, in college. And so she's had so little time on her own to kind of like figure out who she is and what she cares about and what she stands for. Yeah, I I was really interested in it being a long, long term relationship. I'm really this wasn't my experience at all, but I'm really fascinated by the people who got into relationships in the sort of early part of the 2000s and like 2006 or whatever. And then we're with someone for a really long time. And then when they came out of those relationships, not only had to figure out how to date again, but the way that dating happens had completely changed and the rules had kind of just been made. And so they had to figure out not just texting, but like these apps that were told. I remember like the first time I went on Tinder, it was like the wild, wild west out there. So she's a really, really inexperienced person romantically. But as you say, she's also kind of just inexperienced at being an independent adult. Women in particular are so rewarded for getting into relate romantic relationships with men. And it's easy to be like, great, I know myself. Everyone around me seems to think I've got it together because I've done this one thing that we've agreed is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But actually she's much less far along in her personal development than she realizes or has been allowed to realize by other people. For sure. And let's go back to Tinder a little bit because I do love, there is a feeling of validation at the beginning. Like there is a reminder on your phone all the time that there are a lot of people out there who want to have sex with you. you Yeah. (laughs) And that that has to be helpful. I didn't want it to be only miserable. You know, everyone has like bad stories from dating on the apps, but like, I also think there is something fun about it or there really can be. It can really wear you down and I know and grind you down over time, but there is a real sense of excitement when you first get on there, I think. And feelings of excitement during the early days of a breakup are pretty thin on the ground. So I wanted to highlight that and that kind of mania that you feel just swiping through these, these endless profiles. And Maggie gets to fully come out, basically. she I'm freezing this around. Maggie gets to search for women, too. Yes, she has that big... I mean, it's certainly a big moment for me. Like, show men and women feels like such a definitive... You're, like, ticking the thing. You're like, yeah, that is what I want. Show me men and women. Let's go. So I wanted... Yeah, I wanted to highlight that. Again, and that feels really exciting, too. Even if it's just, like, <clears throat> literally swiping through these profiles, it's like... You're acknowledging to yourself and to anyone who can see your profile that this is something that you want, which might be something you've only really said internally to yourself. So it can be really, you know, like emancipating. Yeah. And and then there's there's the level where Tinder is Mm -hmm. very similar to a social media addiction in that there's always something going on. You can always look at it and find new things. And Maggie has a really tough time with that about what she should be sharing and with whom. Yeah, there's not a big, I think, of what what goes where (laughs) for Maggie. I mean, I think it's pretty 
I saw something on the internet somewhere recently that was like, oversharing is a, a way of basically seeking validation for your inner thoughts and your opinions. And so Maggie, someone who hasn't really learned to validate herself and is definitely oversharing. I mean, and then she's involved with the version of Twitter where you get really rewarded for that kind of oversharing. I feel like it's a really distinct part of Twitter where women are kind of telling these very abject stories about their sex and dating lives, usually with men. And everyone's like, this is hilarious. And it's like, I, they're very, they're often worded in really funny ways, but the information is often so grim. And I was really, but I felt the pull of it when I was, when I've been in dark places, I feel like, oh yeah, it would be great to just like throw up a glib little joke about this and not, and then not have to feel it anymore or feel like other people get it or but it's, I think it's much less empowering maybe than it feels or, or that people want it to feel. And then on the other side of things, Maggie is very insistent that she doesn't need to see a therapist, that she can kind of figure it out on her own. And of course, you sort of want to yell at her. <laughs> like, yeah. Ask for but- help. <laughs> A book is like in many ways, like a nightmare version of what my divorce might have been like if I hadn't had a longstanding relationship with a therapist from an, like a my mid-20s. You know, if I hadn't had like a fitness practice that helps me feel calm when I feel crazy, if I didn't have an awareness of the ways that I can be too much, you know, Maggie, I kind of stripped all of that stuff back when I was making Maggie as a character just so that I could sort of really put her through her paces. But I think, yeah, she's very anti-therapy, which is a an opinion I have never held. <laughs> <laughs> and and then she's also good at ranting at her friends about her situation, but not so good about leaning on them in a way that is helpful and that is reciprocal. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another big sort of a realization for Maggie in the in the book. The whole book is really like a love letter to supportive friends. I feel like I've I've read so many novels about very sad or messy characters kind of going through these difficult all seem to be sort of friendless. And that's just not really been my experience of hard times. I feel like I'm never more grateful for the friends that I have than when I'm going through something difficult. And if you're really lucky, obviously you trade off who in the group is difficult thing and who's being supported but I really want you know for every messy unlikable female character I feel like there's a group of exhausted <laughs> friends just frame <laughs> I want to just kind of put them back into the story a little bit and yeah Maggie's you know she's being very selfish towards the end of the novel she's complaining constantly about being lonely and alone and of course she's been surrounded by these lovely charming people the entire time but she's been privileging romantic love over all of the, the other ways that love is being offered to her. And it takes quite like a dark turn for her to realize it and open her eyes to what's been there. For sure. And, and another theme that I, I think really runs through the book and that I really sympathize with is that Maggie's always weighing these questions of scale, like ranting about late capitalism and how we're all (laughs) fucked and I don't think she's wrong yeah but then she's also 
feeling bad about feeling bad and realizing that others have it worse for her and thinking that she should then act like she is totally fine. Yeah. But again, it all ends up being a way of avoiding her feelings, right? Of being like, God, I'm devastated that my relationship didn't work out. But there are people who are starving to death because of climate change. And (laughs) those things are both true. And the insane thing about living in the world now is that we know about it in in a really constant way that we didn't before. So we have access to all of this enormous misery that's true, that's real. You know, like the housing crisis is real. It's not related to your breakup. They're just (laughs) two terrible things occurring at the same time. (laughs) Totally. And then one of my favorite parts of the book are the interstitial. And I kind of see like you used to write a lot of humor pieces or maybe you still do, but but I, I see that coming out in those sections of the book. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted, to, those were like some of the very first things that I wrote for the book because my background is in those kinds of humor pieces. And I wanted to start with something that felt familiar because a novel felt pretty daunting, but also I used them as kind of character exercises to get to know Mag, you know, there's like Google search histories and emails with food delivery places. And there's a list of all the reasons that she and her husband didn't work out. And I just wanted to kind of map for myself the ways that the narrator and I converged and where we differed and how her relationship was not my relationship and what it looked like. I wanted to put myself on very solid footing, basically, because the novel is set almost like claustrophobically inside this woman's head. Mm-hmm. I was like, I should really, I should really get to know her before I start writing out this year in her life. And then I wasn't sure if I would put them in, but I felt like they were so much more exposing of who she is. And because she doesn't really know herself, I thought it was important to have these almost like objective windows yes. into how she's really doing. You know, she says she's fine, but she's Googling Kate Bush karaoke very late at night. So <laughs> she's not. <laughs> And and I love her fantasies. A lot of these the interstitials are fantasies that involve karaoke or that involve Harry Styles. And like, <laughs> once again, that's an excellent way to not deal with your feelings is to imagine being someone else. Yeah, I know. Too much fantasizing is like, you know, it seems harmless, right? You're just drifting off on the train, but like, it can be a way of avoiding something else that's going on in your real life. And also, I just think it's it's funny because every, I think you get really grandiose in your in your mind during breakups. <laughs> you just think, oh, I, I'm, I'm walking around, but in a really poignant way. <laughs> and I, I have a list of karaoke songs, for sure. I, I mean, I assume. Oh, yeah, for sure. And everyone wants to hear them. That's the, everyone's ultimate delusion is that other people want to hear them doing karaoke. That's not whether true. you're going through a breakup or not. <laughs> whether you're going through a breakup or not, everyone's buying into that one hard. We need it. We need that fantasy. Absolutely. And and talk to me a little bit about Maggie's job because to me it sounds fascinating, and yet it does not inspire much passion in her. Yeah, I think <clears throat> it's. Maggie is a an adjunct professor and she's working her way through a PhD dissertation with not much success. And she's not really loving it. I think I, so I did a master's degree in early modern literature myself and was like hoping to do a PhD as well. And then realized that it was like, 
I had really romanticized the job and I, I, I'm very interested in and fascinated by early modern literature and theater in particular still. But I realized that like caring about that and wanting to know more about that is not necessarily the same as like the responsibility of being a source of knowledge for others about that and the amount of work that's just you alone in an archive was like not a very good play from the 1500s because I think we only have like <laughs> 300 plays from that era that exist full stop and they're not all winners and, and we've read a lot of essays about Hamlet so it's a tricky <laughs> is a tricky field <laughs> and I think again I sort of made Maggie this kind of funhouse mirror version of my life where my interest in like because there definitely was an element when I was thinking fantasizing about doing a PhD when I was young about like thinking that that would be a really cool job to have which is not enough of a reason to devote yourself to that but again she hasn't quite reached that level of questioning with herself about the difference between you know passion and like a sense of professional responsibility or like you know want to go see a play versus wanting to sit and read a play for eight hours and then read a bunch of weird pamphlets that people wrote about the play it's very different <laughs> she has a real expect versus reality problem totally and and i can only imagine that adjuncting is like the worst part of and fantasizing about a career in academia is is you get to adjuncting and it sounds miserable I mean, Maggie also is dealing with, I think, something that a lot of millennials are dealing with, which is that the most of the stuff that at least my parents told me about how getting a job works and what a job would be, it was completely inaccurate and not super useful. And the kinds of jobs that are available are not the kinds of jobs that were described to us yes. <laughs> when we were and considering these jobs. You know, like my parents didn't want me to be a comedian really supportive of me trying to be an academic, which is insane. The year that I got my MA, I looked on a like a job postings website for professors. And for early modern and medievalist specialists, there were two jobs in all of North America. You know, like, it's just, it's not like, oh, just get your tweed blazer on and don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and And then even like, there's no guarantee that you will stay in those positions until you get tenure, which I think is probably even. It sounds much like more tenure difficult. is just a myth now. It's, it's just something they whisper about. <laughs> for sure. It's like winter is coming for academics. They know it used to happen, but. <laughs> I, but, but, the, but a really bright spot for Maggie at work is, is her boss who seems yeah. <laughs> very cool. I know, who has a, a name that almost sounds like mine. Tell me about Maris. <laughs> I wanted to have, well, first of all, I just didn't want to write a book that was only a bunch of 20-somethings having problems. I feel like real life involves people across generations. And I think it was important to me to have some some older characters in the book, particularly because Maggie is someone who's really lacking in hindsight and someone like Maris, who's lived for many decades longer, is just like an amazing kind of actual, just physical reminder of, of the concept of hindsight that you will just survive this, life will carry on for you. And I wanted someone who could kind of, who would not really take Maggie's shit. Her friends are are a little bit more gentle with her. And Maris mm -hmm. is just like, oh my God, 
don't want to deal with this. But then we also learned towards the end of the book that Maris doesn't really have it all sorted out either, which was important to me that she not just be some like magical grandma who knows everything, <laughs> you know, she is someone who's also capable of behaving in, you know, vain and petty ways or messing something up and not wanting to face it. And in a way, I think that's sort of what draws them to each other, but it, it doesn't mean that even a broken person or someone who's dealing with something really difficult or who's made big mistakes fall to someone else. I wanted everyone in the book to kind of have a struggle that was theirs, whether or not they were, you know, like a, a largely positive character or positive influence on our main character. Speaking of which, I love the character of Amy, who is like the real like hardened, angry divorcee. And, and, and yet she's kind of, she kind of figures her stuff out too. Yeah, I love Amy. She was the most fun to write. I was, when I was going through my divorce, I kept getting set up on these like coffees and drinks with other young divorced people because people didn't really know what to do with you. And then if, if someone knows you're getting divorced, they'll, they'll call you and be like, oh, my cousin is getting divorced. Like, can, I, can you go for coffee with my cousin? <clears throat> Just tell her it's going to be fine. I was like, I don't know if it is going to be fine. <laughs> and so with Amy, I, I was I wanted someone who Maggie would kind of never really meet in any other way. I, Maggie, Amy is the kind of woman that I know a lot of them, but I don't have a lot of them in my close friend group. And I was sort of like, why not? And what would it be like to be to be friends with someone like that? And, and why am I a little bit closed off to that idea? And Amy is someone who I think because she's a little basic, Maggie really writes off at not knowing stuff, <laughs> just stuff in general. Not knowing stuff. <laughs> but Amy is, is really taking charge of her own experience. You know, the anger is an important step in moving on, feeling angry and disappointed. Like she's, she's acknowledging it. And so she's much farther along than Maggie realizes. And Maggie actually has a lot to learn from her. And also Amy is a really good model of reciprocal friendship as well. And she kind of exists in the periphery of Maggie's friend group. She works at the same hospital as one of Maggie's close friends. So we just get another glimpse into like a way that you can have a divorce without going completely mad. It's not necessary to go insane. You, you, can, you get to decide how insane you go. And Maggie's really acting like it's out of her hands. And Amy's really taking charge. I love that. And, and of course, not to get too into it, but you do have the book end in the winter of 2020, right before. There, there's no mention of, of, of any pandemic or COVID, but, but it's looming there in the, in the distance. I know. I, I wrote it. I started writing it right before the pandemic started. So I started in January 2020. I went away for a couple of days and wrote like the first, I don't know, 18,000 words or something. And then when the pandemic started, I think a lot of Maggie's bad, depressed habits were coming from how we were all behaving in the pandemic. Like all, certainly all the ordering online. I was like, mid-pandemic, had a, developed a really bad online shopping thing and was like, oh God, I'm just like trying to make new things happen in the day. <laughs> this is not right. And then I just, yeah, it was set in 2018. It's set in 2018 and 2019. And I just didn't want to think about the pandemic at all. I was like, I'm, we're not, it has to, I'd always planned for it to be over one year, but I was so grateful for that plan as the pandemic carried on. And I'm writing another novel now and I am still not sure what to do. I don't want to write about it. 
I don't think it's interesting. It's like, I think a lot about how the Spanish flu is like never shows up in like the big books from that time. They were just mm-hmm. like, we're moving on. We're not getting involved with this. For sure. I would, one, one theory is that there are a lot of time travel books now specifically. Oh. So you don't have to deal with the recent past, which is, I get it. That's so interesting. I I was really pleased to have set the book a couple years behind just because technology and trends move so fast that it's sort of impossible to capture the moment while you're in it. I mean, lots of people do, but it's it's very intimidating to me as a concept. And I think setting something maybe a year before you start writing it just gives you a chance to really understand where you're setting your book because things are just like changing constantly. And it can look just like so, it can look so dated or so wrong. I mean, we have this with like TV shows all the time. You write like a joke about, I mean, this is a very old reference now, but like a tail joke. You have to (laughs) swap that out. It's got to be something else now. Beats. You know, (laughs) it beats. It's it's Brussels sprouts that they charred one side of, you know, and those kinds of details really clang when they're wrong. It's true. Monica, this has been so lovely. Before we leave, would you like to recommend a couple of books for us? Sure. I just started reading The Survivalist by Kishana Kali, and I'm really, really enjoying it. I think it just came out, and that's been really that's been really great. It's like I'm always looking for, I'm obsessed with this thing that Sheila Hetty writes in How Should a Person Be, which is you have to know where the sunny is. If you know where the sunny is, then you know everything. And so writers who know where the sunny is, I'm always looking for. So Shana Kali is one. She's a TV comedy writer, so she really knows. Heidi Julevitz's The Folded Clock, I read like once a year. It's so funny and tender and odd. And then I, I'm just, I also just finished reading. I really like reading scripts, partially for work, but I just find them really interesting. And Emma Thompson's shooting script for Sense and Sensibility is Ooh. so good. And it comes with her shooting diary from when she was making the movie. And it's just all these like really charming stories about Alan Rickman being gorgeous in a country pub. It's just such, it's such a nice like weekend. You can get through it in like an afternoon, just like a really good weekend read. I love that. Monica, thank you so much. Really good actually is the name of the novel that you should all read. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.